Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad that you all have come along for this important episode. Before I introduce my guests, I want you to know that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we do that through master's, bachelor's, doctoral degrees, and several lay initiatives. We have our largest enrollment in our history, particularly as a Global Methodist Church has come into existence. We have more than 300 Global Methodist Church pastors who are studying with us. So that means uh, with those pastors, in addition to our current students, there are probably more than 500 churches this Sunday that will have a WBS preacher serving them. In addition, to 600 plus alumni. So it's a real privilege for us at Wesley Biblical Seminary to be able to serve the church at this unique moment. Also, I'd love for you to check out some things I have available at andymillerthethird.com. That's andymillerii.com. I have a free gift for people who sign up for my email list. It's called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. And I'd love to send that your way if you sign up for my email list. But obviously I'm not in my usual seat today, but I am glad to welcome in one of those 600 alumni. Bevan Stein. Welcome, Bevan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, Bevan is a missionary with the International Messengers Organization, and he's a 1995 alumnus of Wesley Biblical Seminary and has been serving for 28 years, is that right? In Slovakia. So I'm interested in hearing a little bit more of your story. Now, I've heard about it for two hours this morning, but I want to try and condense that as best I can. Um, So... What's it, what does it feel like to bring be back in the States now? It's been a while, right? Uh, well, I get back about once a year for a short time. Okay. This time, at courtesy of the IRS, I get <laughs> to be here for six months, whether I like it or not. Right. I do like it. It is a busy time of my ministry because I am spending a lot of time on the road, speaking in churches, and trying to raise support for our ministry overseas. Yeah. Uh, I do like it. It is intense, a little tiring. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I preach uh, you know, morning and evening and travel be, be to the next meeting and immediately I'm uh, up, I have to be up again and ready to go again. So right. staying in other people's homes, living out of my car in a suitcase <laughs> for six whole months, you know, I separated from the rest of my family. So. Yeah, it's tough. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me is I've loved hearing your story to think about what I just said, how we have, you know, 600 plus alumni 500, you know, probably churches that are being served through our 400 plus students right now. And just to think of the the ministry that I'm privileged to be a part of here at Wesley Biblical Seminary, and so much of it is unseen mm-hmm. to me or unknown. Right. And that's that's how I felt hearing your story. But we had a connection uh, as you started to tell your story <laughs> of, of a key moment in your life at right. Asbury University where God did some work. So why don't you tell us about that? And that, that kind of sets the stage for where you go and what happens for your ministry. Okay, it's a little hard to know exactly where to begin because there was a prehistory uh, that led up to a critical or crisis moment, and that is that uh, I had spent about six years trying to appropriate God's love and the gospel to me personally. I could preach it for others much easier than I could receive it for myself. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's one thing to believe it is true, but another thing to to somehow appropriate that into your, your own personal heart and life in a way that brings you victory. Right. I don't know why, but that was really hard for me because of some things that had happened earlier in my life. And uh, there was a breakthrough that happened at your grandfather's uh, fall revival that he held at Asbury University. And I believe it was um, 1984. Okay. Either 84 or 85. Um, and which uh, I just really sense that somehow this gospel applied to me 
and that somehow God had found in his big heart to love even me. Amen. And that transformed my life and went from being something I believed was true to something that I lived out of. Yeah. And as a result of that, I felt a call also to uh, full-time Christian service. Amen. Well, it's interesting in those moments, and you mentioned my grandfather, and so it's a common story in my life when I introduce myself and I say I'm Andy Miller, and people are surprised. Oh, I know an Andy Miller. <laughs> are you related to? And generally the answer is yes. So, it, But I imagine if he were here mm-hmm. and, and you were able to tell him that story, like it was there at your revival, I think his answer would be, well, I'm glad that I was in the same room. You know, like, isn't it like that God was at work and, and who knows who else was in that room that day yeah. and that he was faithful to whatever God was asking him to say. Mm-hmm. And I think that those stories continue to unfold in many different places. But that led you at some point, this kind of direction of your life, being convinced of God's love, led you then to Wesley Biblical Seminary. Uh, and we, we might not have time to get into that story, yeah. but um, you came here and then got a degree here, served some churches while you're here. Yes. And, but... You knew all along, you and your wife knew you wanted to go into overseas missions, yes, right? And there was a little right. bit of conflict there, right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, felt like God was calling me to Africa. And the more she heard about Africa and my experience there for six months, uh, the more she decided that was not where she felt called. <laughs> and yet uh, she didn't really reveal that until after we got married. Maybe it didn't come full uh, to her full awareness, I can't do that until after we were married, because that's when she revealed it to me. Oh, wow. Okay. And so um, suddenly I realized, oh, I don't think I had a vision uh, for how this, my ministry involved my wife enough. Mm -hmm. And so she made that clear to me that that was, if she was called to missions, not just to be a missionary wife. Yes. And that meant that it needed to be a vision for her also in this ministry. Yeah. So, so you guys came here as a, result, as a result of trying to figure out yeah. where God was leading. Can you tell us a little bit about what I mean, some people who feel a call to foreign missions, mm-hmm. to you know, leaving the country, they might think, well, why do I need to go to seminary? I mean, and I was actually surprised when you said that. I realized that you decided to come here and spend years here studying, getting a master's degree. What was it that seminary did for you to kind of set your trajectory or your perspective as you headed out before you went out on this adventure, which we're going to get to in a minute. Okay. Well, uh, I, I, for me, uh, a call to uh, serve included a call to prepare, okay. a call to train. They're not separate callings, they're yeah, one and yeah. the same. So uh, I believed that if God hasn't made it clear to me where to go and there is this gap of time, I'm going to plug that gap with something essential to a long-term yeah. service and ministry. And I make long-term commitments. Yes. I felt that that making a, a career commitment, a 50-year commitment, was, an, was a minimum commitment to missions. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me to date and marry my wife. And uh, we didn't have, have maybe compatible um, visions on where to go, but we had a compatible commitment to missions mm. and dedication to it. And so we just had to work out the particulars on where to yeah. go. And while I was working that out, I thought, hey, we can work on training and preparation while we're praying about putting a new vision together for the both of us. And so that's the reason why I chose Western Biblical Seminary. It was came recommended to me by Dr. Jim Hamilton, an oh, old yeah. professor from uh, Asbury University. Yeah. And it just so happened that the former vice president of it for institutional advancement from Asbury University was now the director or president of Wesley Biblical Seminary and was an Harold old, Spann. Harold Spann yeah, yeah, sure. was an old um, 
contact of mine that I had huge re- trust and respect for. And so it's kind of the natural choice for me um, mm-hmm. to, to, if I was going to go get seminary education, to do it here at West of the Biblical Seminary. Yeah, well, so, we're so glad that you did. And it's interesting, to you talk about this long-term commitment. And I, I honestly I don't, know, don't know if I've heard anybody say it with as much clarity as I heard you say to me this morning, that you felt like it's a 50-year commitment. Yeah, yeah I just yeah. kind of, I just kind of felt like um, I needed, I think missionaries make two mistakes. They either okay. don't stay long enough, okay. or else they stay, stay too long. Hmm. Uh, if they don't stay long enough, they have too short of a vision. They don't want to develop something that is going to uh, grow from the grassroots, develop, mature, and be turned over to local leadership. If they stay too long, they don't have an exit strategy, and they don't want to hand over roles and responsibilities that nationals could do yes. and need to do yes. for a long-term ministry to last longer than the missionary. So I wanted to avoid the short-term pitfall of, st- of having a vision or a commitment to for just four years. Yes. And I wanted to avoid the, the other mistake of staying too long and not having an exit strategy. Yeah. Oh, man. But 50 years, a significant commitment. And God led you to the idea of heading to Slovakia. This is a place where you had described there was no particular missionary movement that you were joining. This is a wild thing to me. It's like you didn't have anybody invite you. But no. you felt called right. to Slovakia. Right. And it was all uh, demographic studies, and I uh, studying uh, uh, John, Patrick Johnstown's book, Operation Prayer. Okay, World, yeah, sure. World Prayer. Um, and so I was looking through those, you know, each country and praying about where we might go. And um, I just found that Slovakia has had a long history of Christian presence. The Roman Catholic Church is very strong there. Even the Lutheran Church is very strong there. Yes. Um, And other denominations, Protestant denominations, are much smaller than the Lutheran Church. And uh, when I noticed that uh, they were sending, uh, receiving missionaries, but not sending missionaries, I looked for other countries that that had a similar pattern or history that they had not been involved in the Great Commission on the sending end, only on the receiving end. Okay. And so suddenly Slovakia kind of stuck out to me as, hey, what is God wanting to do in that country now following years of communism mm-hmm. and open opportunities to for missionaries to come to that country and for the country itself to develop something that it's needing to be developed, certainly after 500 years. <sighs> it must be surely time. It must surely be part of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in that country. Wow. But I didn't have any anyone over there inviting me to come. I didn't have anyone saying, we need your expertise and you're the man to help us lead this missions movement. I just went with a burden and a vision and that was it. Wow. And this is, like you said, this is after communism falls, the 95, 96? Yeah, I went in 96. Okay, okay. Yeah, I went in April of 96. So there's so many things that happen. Now, I'm going to do something that's Totally unfair. Okay. I'm going to summarize okay. what you told me in two hours, and I, then I want to focus <laughs> in. Maybe we can drop in a few of these stories. But God leads you to serve orphanages in that period where you bring programs in, and that expands. It changes the nature of these horrific orphanages as kids are being saved. You set up camps. You do all sorts of ministry. God leads you and your wife to adopt seven children across the time who nobody else wanted in that particular period. And then this leads to later— a different sort of ministry with bikers, <laughs> with bikers like Harley Davidson type of bikers in Slovakia. Then also, just even recently, you started another ministry connected to the same things you've done in 
Uganda, Uganda, and then, sorry, I had a gap. I wanted to say Rwanda, Uganda, but there's something else. Now, there's at least four major chapters. Honestly, I want to say four books yeah. that should be written. <laughs> that's um, true. But I want to talk about one thing that's happened recently in the last couple of years. So after this time, you've built up influence within Slovakia. You're serving people in that, in that country. The ecclesial leaders know you. And when the war happened in Ukraine, which is to the east, am I correct, right, of Slovakia, right, right. all of a sudden you had a new burden. Yes. So, so I'm sorry to jump past this, but you've this is after decades of ministry already, but this is a story I want to focus in on okay, if we can. Okay, so what happens then? Like, uh, t tell us that story. Like, after you already established your ministry, now you're in this place. Well, uh, you know, we've ra we're raising up local leaders uh, inside Slovakia, so that gave me the freedom to be able to develop new ministries. When the war began in Ukraine, okay. I had now time that I could go uh, take supplies, humanitarian aid to Ukraine, and so. So within three days of the first uh, of the war uh, outbreak, they were, we developed our first um, humanitarian aid. And over the next few months, I took ten tri trips, and and uh, the Lutheran Church asked me to uh, to coordinate, to be the national coordinator for humanitarian aid to Ukraine. They were receiving money from the worldwide uh, union of or federation of lutheran churches to help with both refugees coming to slovakia but also uh, for to help with humanitarian aid to ukraine and they needed a national coordinator for that okay. so they contacted me and said hey you're doing this already would you be willing to do that for us okay and i said sure okay <laughs> yeah and one of the like i don't mean to go uh, drop back but one of the key verses too that has kind of guided you it wasn't like i'm going to go to Slovakia and do children's ministry. I'm gonna go and train pastors. It was a broader vision about the, uh, the, that comes from Matthew 5, is that right? Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I do believe that the gospel sometimes is um, uh, kind of cleaned up somehow or sterilized and somehow we, we separate good works out from the gospel as if they can be two separate things. Right. And I don't believe that that's possible. Amen. Uh, I not only think that it's, it's necessary for the um, confirmation of our own commitment to Christ, uh, but I do believe that it's also necessary for the proclamation of the gospel to unbelievers. Yes. So for them to hear or receive the gospel, it needs to be contextualized. And in many parts of the world, that context means, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm suffering, I'm hurting, I'm dying here. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. a message of, you know, uh, a purely spiritual message, uh, if you confess with, uh, that Jesus is Lord and believe on him in your heart by faith, you will be saved. And, you know, you go to heaven when you die. The spiritual nature of that separated from a, contextual message yes. that we care that God loves you yes. and has died for you yes sending his son to die for you on the cross he loves you so much that can i use the analogy that i used earlier go ahead yeah yeah okay yeah. this is going to shock it the will audiences. shock people yeah okay are you ready for this uh, i'm ready i don't know if they will be but go ahead Let's, get, let's remove the uh, the image of the cross what god has done is in a modern context let's say strapped his son to the front bumper of a Dodge Ram and bashed it through the gates of hell mm. to rescue the world on the other side of those gates. Mm. Amen. Knowing that he would obliterate his son in the process. That 
the cross has become so sterile or so emblematic or something that we, we don't realize the full impact of what it meant for God to give his son to die for the world. And the passion that God, that means that God has for this world mm-hmm. mm. that should motivate us if we have any a spark of the love of God in our hearts mm. for the thing that breaks God's heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, in carrying, taking up our cross and following him, that includes being strapped to the front bumper mm. and crashing the gates of hell. Mm. Wow. Just pause and take that in, folks, <laughs> right? Like this, this, what's so beautiful is even though Jesus does that and crashes the gates of hell, he also crashes back out of them. Yes, he does. You know, he crashes back out and he defeats hell. That's right. He, he's resurrected and ascends to the right hand of the Father and somehow by the power of the Spirit is available for us. Yes. And, you know, calls us to deny ourselves, to yeah. die to ourselves, to take up our cross, yeah. which is, you know, what you're doing in a beautiful way. So you you have the—I'm sorry to jump back to this story, Kyle. I almost was one less, like, let's have the altar call now, and let's go. <laughs> uh, but you, you, you start this work to, you know, let others see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Right. Like, that's kind of like your mission, your yeah. sense of what God's called you to do. So you go in, the the Lutheran Church is sponsored, asked you to lead this effort, but you come to this interesting moment, right, where you run out of money. Yeah, uh, it's easy to do. (laughs) Humanitarian aid is expensive. I I got a a commercial truck driver's license so I could buy a truck and take supplies on a larger scale to Ukraine. Well, even that's a story, right? Because you were just down to your last little bit of money. Right. And you you could have said, you you decided to use it on what? Right. (laughs) I could have bought supplies for one more load uh, uh, with my truck and trailer. Okay. uh, Truck, pickup truck and a trailer. But I decided instead to ask our mission agency if they had any money in a Ukrainian fund that they could use for matching funds to what I had in my Ukrainian fund. Okay. And we would come up with an, with enough money for me to buy a big, oh, what I think of as a big truck, an 18-ton truck. Okay. And, um, and they, they provided that money, but then my account was empty and theirs too, just about. Right? And so we didn't really know what to expect, but we could either go home or go big. And we went big. So you bought a semi truck basically. I mean, well, maybe it's, not a, a, it's a, it's a solid chassis uh, truck, but, um, I, I had a friend who is a Ukrainian who has a full size semi okay. that if I have money to fill his truck and run with 24 tons of supplies, I can use him. Okay. What we what we didn't have was something intermediate between a semi and a van. Gotcha. Right. Okay. And so I bought an 18 ton truck, so I can carry eight tons legally. Um, and so if I have supplies up to eight tons, I run my truck. If we have more than that, we'll run his. If I have 30, 30 tons or thirty two tons, we run both. Mm. Wow. And and part of the point is that you're right there at the border of right. Ukraine, right? And you're able to get uh, from Slovakia into Ukraine at, the, at that period. And let's just remind people, this is a war zone, yeah, okay? Yeah. This is why it's so hard to get. I mean, today it is a war zone. Yes, it is. So th- t- what is it like? You're driving a truck into this war zone. Well, the, the, it has changed uh, over the course of two years. And, and initially, it was um, much more risky, I think getting just to Kiev, uh, there were lots of rockets that were getting through. They didn't have the Patriot missile system set up yet. 
Even now, it's still risky. Those rockets are still landing all over Ukraine in major cities and crashing into apartment complexes and everything. I was in Kiev one time, and I counted 14 rockets that got through mm. and were hit into a buildings nearby. And wow. so, uh, but it was more dangerous in the beginning stages. Uh, and the, the, electric, the electricity was off. There were you know, problems all over the country. Uh, with electricity, everybody needed generators, and they couldn't find them fast enough. It was in the middle of winter. People were freezing and starving, and it was really rough. The first uh, Getting through that first winter was extremely difficult. Uh, many of the r r major roads had been bombed. The bridges were out. And so I just needed help even from week to week as I would go. I needed help knowing which roads were navigable. Gotcha. Okay, Bevan, one of the things that's interesting, you've described kind of the war-torn nature of what you're experiencing driving in. But in the story, people might be a little confused because I jumped ahead because I know a little bit of the conclusion. Okay, okay. But you have a truck. Yeah. Well, what are you going to put in the truck? I mean, you used all of your money yeah. to just buy the truck. Well, you know, the EU um, did not allow, or companies operating in the EU do not allow their trucks to go across the border. So they would take supplies to the border and leave them off. Oh, wow. And then they would have to somehow, uh, Ukrainians would have to get across the border to pick up those supplies. But many, most of the men are ages 16, 18 to 60 and couldn't leave the country. And so there was a huge problem with how to get those supplies across the border and into Ukraine and all the way to the far eastern side. Okay? So you could. I you, could. How, what, what, what's your immigration status or whatever? How is it possible for you to do that? Well, I just didn't care what the insurance company said. <laughs> oh, it's insurance. <laughs> That's it's the issue. Yeah. So like insurance companies, even though they would be making money, they won't approve anybody to go in. So you're just like, well... I have a different sort I, of insurance my, agent. Yeah, that's right. And I, so, yeah, I mean, if the insurance uh, says no company vehicles will be allowed to go, then the company has to abide by that because the liability would be too high for a company to continue to operate. Mm. But we don't operate on a per, for profit basis. Right. We're on, we're on mission. Yes. And we start out thinking, okay, I've got to be this battering ram on the gates of hell. Yes. <laughs> wow. So, so what is a, what is an insurance problem at the border to stop me? You know, <laughs> that's not, that's a pretty thin uh, barrier to stop me. And so, yeah, I just take my truck and I, uh, it's licensed in my name and I'm carrying supplies that are licensed in my name and uh, they can't stop me at the border. They, they ask for, you know, paperwork, which I don't have, but they say, well, we don't know what to do with you. We've never seen any one before that has, that doesn't fit the mo the model. Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, is it illegal for you to let me to pass? No, I don't think so. Well, you're going to let me pass? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So every single time I talk him into letting me go through <laughs> this big truck. <laughs> wow. Okay. I mean, there's all sorts of parallels to things. And I'm not even talking all your work with children, which reminds me of George Mueller. And this sort of work reminds me of Brother Andrew. So it's really <laughs> fascinating the way that you kind of work your way through. You're like God smuggler. Not to mention, of course, the Harley Davidson motorcycle <laughs> ministry. Okay. So it's so so hard for me not to go back to that. But hey, back here, you're you, uh, empty truck. How are you filling the truck up with stuff? You ran okay. out of money. I still don't well, get that. Okay. Um, since I'm able to get through. Okay. And there's a big need to get through. And there are Ukrainian uh, truck drivers that are allowed to leave Ukraine okay. if they're going to be carrying in humanitarian aid or fuel or other essential necessities for the, for the operation of the country. They can get exceptions and they can leave the country and get back in. Otherwise, they have to go to the war front. So I have a partner that I can work to, to fill his truck. But even having trucks, 
um, is only part of the solution because you have to have something to fill it. And people started contacting me from different countries, Poland, for example, uh, people in Germany. Once the, the Lutheran Church asked me to be their national coordinator, there were churches in Germany that asked me to help them get supplies in. Um, the Slovak ambassador to Ukraine contacted wow. me about bringing some medical supplies from France. Uh, he also wanted to know if I could handle logistics for about 100 truckloads of construction supplies that the Slovak, Slovak government was going to uh, send to Ukraine. And so I just kind of became this logistics person, sometimes doing the tr uh, transportation myself and sometimes organizing it for others. But because I had the complete supply chain from A to Z worked out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was often used um, either to fill a part of that supply chain or all of it. Did that supply some type of income for you too? No. Was it, or, or, as no, far as like, I tried to cover my costs and didn't always do that. Yeah. But uh, I did have some support still coming from America that could help me repair or main, do maintenance on my truck when I needed it. But I tried as much as possible to at least cover the cost of my transportation and getting the, the, so people would donate the aid? They would donate the aid, okay. yeah. Churches, mostly churches, um, They people would collect supplies and into a collection center somewhere, and then somebody would call me and say, hey, we've got X number of tons of supplies. Can you help us get it to Ukraine? Mm -hmm. And so I had a warehouse that I was renting, and so I would sometimes collect those supplies myself. Um, I worked through the Lutheran Church to organize something, a, a project called um, operation, uh, boxes of blessings. Oh, right. Yes. yes. And, uh, each box contains 45 pounds, uh, about 80 different items that are sufficient ideally, or, um, to help three member family with 15 pounds for one month of supplies It's very minimal, gotcha. very minimal, but at least it helps people who are survive, starving. But I mean, this is one of the most destitute so, places in the world right now. <laughs> on the far on the far east side, yes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I guess there's other places too, and you were working in some of those yeah, too. Yeah, So, so uh, I got all of the churches, Lutheran churches especially, but we worked with other organizations and helped them also organize the same idea, boxes of blessings through Baptist churches and things. And oftentimes, I would be the one who'd carry those boxes into Ukraine, and so. Uh, I took thousands of boxes this way. Wow. So you're in this place because you have a sense that God's led you to be in this region of the world with a desire to share God's love. And it's clear. So I'm curious, you're driving a truck. Does that give you much opportunity to interact with people? And can you tell me about like it? I, I know that it did. So like what, what was it that you, okay. what was that you well, able to do? Well, there's two levels of people that I interact with in Ukraine. One of the distributors okay. helped me because when I've got a truck or 20, 8, 10, 12, 24 tons of 34 tons of supplies maximum, um, then I needed help getting those out to the actual front doors or cellars or wherever people were living. Right. And so we tried as much as possible to get to the far east side, the areas that had been most devastated by the war and maybe most e and recently liberated. Which is the side where Russia, where right, it goes against right, Russia. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and so if the Ukrainians were successful in driving Russians back, then the people who were coming out from hiding yeah. uh, were the most needy. And so we were trying to get supplies to them. Well, many times the, the trucks can't get that far, mm. but we would need vans to help us to get on some of these smaller roads that couldn't handle trucks and under un, underpasses and that kind of thing and through muddy fields and mud roads and everything. So we, we used distributors 
church contacts okay. that we developed primarily through the Ukrainian Bible Society. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, to help us find contacts among all the different denominations and uh, that we would invite if we were going to go to Kharkiv, for example, or somewhere on the eastern side of the country, we would um, invite vans to come from the closest town that they, we would load two tons of supplies into each van, and then those vans would go uh, and distribute them. Well, we still had truckloads, so we would keep going, going uh, and to our next distribution point and so on. At the last location where we finally had empty trucks, then we would go with those last vans and help administer those supplies to the front doors, to the people. And mm-hmm. we'd get our own pictures, and I could verify where this was going for the donors in Slovakia or America. Yeah. Can you tell me like a story particularly of somebody who you know's life was saved by this aid? Oh man, there's been many uh, stories that I could say. One I think is that kind of sticks out to me. We arrived at a, at a building that had been collapsed by a, um, and a rocket that had hit two days earlier. It was still smoke in the air. But uh, there was this woman, her name is in Ukrainian, Nadia, which happens to mean hope in English, mm. um, who was sitting at the base of this rubble that, you know, three stories. She was on the fifth floor. The rocket hit on the third. The entire building collapsed, three floors on top of her. Oh, my. And they pulled her out, still alive. And she was sitting at the base of this rubble when we got there, two days later, having had no place to go no one to take her in no food to eat she was just out in the elements and it was cold it was winter Mm. and so we got there and saw where she was and immediately started giving her bags of food and uh we gave her a bible and we're going to pray with her but she started crying she put the Mm. food down and started hugging the bible and saying thank you for bringing me a bible i've never had one before this is the first bible i've ever held in my hands wow and i'm so thankful for this and uh, she was we, probably pretty hungry. She was she very hungry. Real She'd f- been sitting out there for two days, but she wow. was more hungry for the knowledge uh, that was that somebody cared about her spiritual yes. needs and emotional needs, and that somebody cared enough to pray for her. Mm. There's something about war that is dehumanizing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and including eating food that people bring to you. Mm. There is something about. Of receiving that aid that also can make you feel a little bit no, I, I understand dehumanized. Yeah. Okay. So, but there's something about bringing somebody a, a gospel message or even the Bible itself that says, "No, you're a person, and yes. God loves you personally and individually and immensely." Yes. This is one of the dangers that can come in any sort of what we often call works of mercy in the Wesleyan tradition is that it can too easily turn into a service that's provided. As, as opposed to a person that's served right. in Jesus' name. It's like easy just to, you know, all right, let's just get this food out and get it to people and just make it happen instead of really recognizing that every person's created in God's image with a capacity to be able to experience God's love right. in their life. That We're, God's provenient grace is already at work in that situation. Sitting out outside at the base of her apartment with none of her neighbors that she knew, they were able to take care of her or invite mm-hmm. her in because they were all living in burned out apartments as well. Okay. Right. She didn't feel particularly loved, wanted, valued as mm-hmm. an individual, as a human being. Giving her food meant it w- would take care of her for a day or two or mm-hmm. a week or mm-hmm. whatever, how long it lasted. But there was something much more significant 
that she needed than just that food. And that was to feel loved and valued as a person. And so when we stayed and prayed with her yes. and hugged her and said, God loves you, yes. we'll be back. And by the way, here's some money for you to pay somebody to let you come into their apartment and give you shelter and food. Okay, gotcha. And we're going to be back. We will check on you. We want, we care about you. You're now on our radar screen. Yeah. We're going to be praying for you. Yeah. Okay. I haven't been able to personally get back, but the people I work with have. Mm, mm-hmm. My distributors keep checking in on her. So that is something that is meaningful to them to know that th- they're not forgotten, mm-hmm, that they're mm-hmm. not just um, a project. Yes. You know, for somebody to get a, a, a picture with so that they can promote their ministry back in America or something. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. don't do that. Yes. We want to love on these people. And if, they ne- if the world would never see them, I want them to know that they matter. Yeah. And so we love, we love to do this ministry very, at a very personal heart level. Uh, and we're sharing the gospel with them, not just dis- distributing humanitarian aid. Right. I, it's just an amazing thing for me and very humbling for me to think about the nature of the ministry that you and I, and you and I have been in similar institutions. We both went to Asbury University. We're part of Wesley Biblical Seminary. And as we think about those 600-plus alumni— Hopefully, all of them, or most of them, are, are trying to figure out, okay, this is the nature of how God is at work in the world and what He wants to do and what He's done in my life, and I respond to that in my local community. Some of those communities might happen to be Jackson, Mississippi, or a rural situation in the United States. Or it might be that you're neighbors to a war-torn country. Yeah. And nevertheless, the call is still the same Yeah, to come into yeah. these situations. We didn't know 28 years ago that there was going to be a war two years ago. <laughs> That's right. In, in, in our neighboring country. But it, when it happened, it, we instantly responded to it. Uh, when I say we, my wife and I, she is part of this team. She also has had to pray for me. And, not, and when I say goodbye to her and not knowing if I'll be able to say hello again, mm. that carries its own toll on her as well and there has been a couple of times she said i'm having a panic attack i haven't heard you about you yeah. from you in a while can you please come home and i've had to leave things where they were and get home quickly wow so i respect that the cost that this is on my wife as well yeah has has there been a point in this recent situation where you've been afraid for your life in the ukraine have you been like a place? you know it's an interesting question if you phrased it a little differently, oh, tell you, me how to ask the question. There you how, go. Have you been at risk of mortal injury, you know, okay. in, in Ukraine? Yeah. I would say, of course. I mean, when 14 rockets are landing in Kiev around you, yeah. I mean, uh, gosh, I I'm have. Sorry I to can, laugh. It's just, it's just beyond what I can, any experiences I've ever imagined. Yeah. Uh, but you, the way you phrased it, I would say no, because okay. you said, have you ever been afraid? Oh, there you go. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're not afraid. No, yeah. no, because there's only one uh, fear casts out fear, faith, faith casts out fear. Yeah. So you have to decide which you want to cast out. Okay. All right. And so the first thing I spend three hours each morning in prayer before I get going. And it's not just because of Ukraine. I've been doing this for years. Yeah. And I don't relate to having fear. Yeah. When I'm walking in obedience to what God has called me to do. I just don't mm-hmm. relate to that. I don't think that rockets bounce off of me like Superman. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that if this is the way that God chooses for me to be taken out, then I want my life to have been a sweet aroma to him as mm-hmm. long as I've had it. 
Amen. You, you said that perfect love casts out fear. Well, you know, perfect love does, but so does faith. Yes, amen. My, my experience is faith is what it does for me. <laughs> well, here, I, I had something I was going to say with that, and that's connected to the, the message of this institution that we yeah, love. Yes. Uh, Wesley Biblical Seminary is often the work of holiness or sanctification is described through those two words, yes. perfect love. Yes. It's like, and what I sense in you, it's these, these three hours you spend in the morning and the work that God's called you to do, it's perfect love and faith at work, operating in the real world. I love it. Um, okay, I'm going to pivot back. Yes. I can't help but say, how, tell us how you became the priest of uh, motorcyclist in, <laughs> in, in Slovakia. This is a wild thing. All of a sudden, like, in the middle of the ministry that God's called you in, this wild up and downs. I pray that it becomes a book, of multiple books <laughs> at some point. But just give us that little piece. Like, okay. You, you well, all of a sudden, you are the... Representative God speaking <laughs> to motorcyclists in in Slovakia. Okay, well, uh, you know, the, okay, uh, I have had a long term desire, unfulfilled. Okay, to have a motorcycle okay. since I was just six years old. Many and people the do. First time I came, became aware of motorcycles, but when I got saved, and especially when I got married, and then when I and called to missions, I thought, okay, motorcycles—that's one of the costs I have to give up. That's you know, right. Pay to bear to this be a missionary. cross. <laughs> bear, bear the cross because that is never ever going to be something that I can justify as a missionary. Yeah. Uh, and then when I was in Slovakia for a number of years, this I think was 2007, I realized. You know what? There is nobody. The Christian Motorcycle Association is not in this country. Mm -hmm. And there is nobody targeting unsaved bikers in this country. Um, and so I decided I was going to do that. Okay. And so, you know, maybe it's a tool that God has uh, desired that he's put in my heart for a reason, not just to be, you know, squashed. So I said, let's, let's uh, find out what happens. And so I, I contacted the headquarters offices of each of the different denominations, Protestant denominations in Slovakia. And got their database of all of the churches that uh, belong to that denomination, combined the database, collated it into one massive da database, and then created a poster saying, I'm going to start a new motorcycle ministry to unsaved bikers, and I want to know if uh, there's anybody in your church that would like to join me. And I sent these posters and a letter explaining who I am and what I'm going to do to every Protestant pastor in the country. Wow. A um, month later, started uh, getting contacts back, and I got up to 17 uh, guys that contacted me back and said, yeah, uh, I want to help you do this. Mm -hmm. And so these were people from churches. Now, I didn't know them from Adam. I didn't know if they were saved, if they had a testimony or not. And so when I'd get together with them, I'd say, we're going to go visit some orphanage, orphanages and uh, share the gospel with a bunch of kids, and I'm going to give you the microphone and let you tell them how you came to Christ and what he means to you. And these guys... Few, if any, were prepared to do that. And even more unprepared were they when the kids that didn't have dads mm, hung mm -hmm. on their neck mm. three and four at a time saying, are you my daddy? Did you come to take me home? Oh, my goodness. Wow. <clears throat> the first time that I did that, I scheduled it so it was one orphanage right after another with about five miles between them. <laughs> The guys that were riding with me said, you are killing us. We don't have time to process what just happened mm -hmm. before we're back into it again. Mm -hmm. The next time you do this, schedule it so we crisscross the country and have three hours between each children's home. And I don't care how many kilometers we have, 
what's important is we have time to process what we're going through. Mm. So are you riding with them at this point? Oh, yeah. So now you've been able to fulfill that dream. You yeah, are. Okay. Right, right. So you have that. And then also you described these places where the non-Christian motorcycle rides want you to okay, be Okay, well, one that's to... skipping it. What happened next was um, a motorcycle club, which is not Christian, but contacted a, a Lutheran pastor um, and said, hey, would you do a motorcycle blessing at the beginning of the year? And he said, well, I don't have a motorcycle, but I know a guy who does and has a vision for ministry to unsaved bikers. And so um, I will let him do the blessing and praying and preaching to the bikers because he, he rides and he'll ride with you, you know? And so that he invited me to come and I started, um, started doing this motorcycle blessing and it's up to about 1100 bikers a year now. Wow. Uh, many of them stay in touch through the year, uh, throughout the course of the year. It's not just once a year. They have special events or they may get married or somebody may die in their family. The biker himself may crash. They asked me to come and be their pastor or priest um, and minister to them because I have this connection with them. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. There's so many things we could talk about, but I really appreciate you taking time to come here. I mean, we didn't, when I woke up this morning, I had no idea you'd be coming to Wesley <laughs> Biblical Seminary and that we'd be able to spend these hours together hearing your story and just so thankful that God, for how God is using you. Now, my, the title of my podcast is More to the Story, and you've certainly given us more to this story, but I'm curious, is there, um, is there something, a, a hobby that you've developed since you've been uh, serving in Slovakia or a certain type of food that you like? Is there more to the story here? <laughs> I don't know if I have any much time for <laughs> for hobbies, to be honest. Uh, I like all the Slovak food, you can tell, because I've put on a lot of weight since have I've been you? over okay. there. <laughs> I used, you know. Um, but uh, as far as a more to the story, you know what? I, I, I'm pretty strongly devoted to ministry and trying to redeem every single day, every yeah. single talent, every single resource yeah. that I have to be uh, as useful for the kingdom as possible. So I don't, I don't waste moments. I don't waste time. I try to fill every single day to the maximum that I possibly can. So I don't have time for, for, uh, for hobbies. I can't say that I do anymore. Well, what's one of those talents that you have that you haven't talked about? Do you, do you <laughs> sing? Do you dance? Do you, what do you do? <laughs> no, you know, I, I love to preach, and I do love to share my passion for, for soul winning, for, um, for ministry that combines compassion with evangelism. Yes, yes. But uh, I don't know that I have any other talents. that I've, I used to have some, but I've let them go. Okay. I used to play the trumpet, for example. Did you really? Yeah. Okay. You're, yeah. Back in my, in my previous, you know... <laughs> Life in in America and in through high school, um, no, I have basically uh, let everything go to the side except for things that I know that will somehow directly um, be fruitful for the kingdom. And maybe that's my my wife thinks that I'm so driven. You know that that uh, book um, um, by Blackwell. What was it? The purpose, purpose, God? Oh, uh, ex the purpose driven. Oh, um, by Rick Warren. Rick yeah, Warren. yeah, yeah. Okay, that's what, but there was another one. Uh, uh, the not the purpose-driven life purpose-driven church purpose-driven church anyway i started to pick up one of those yeah and i thought oh man this is going to kill me if i read this book i am so purpose-driven right now <laughs> that i can't stand to read another one oh, no. it's like it gets in your way yeah. the purpose-driven whatever <laughs> gets in the way of your purpose so I, well who knows maybe maybe the next thing you'll do is you'll start a brass band or something you know, I, I i'm the, i grew up in the salvation army as you know like yeah. you knew my grandfather and um, all these things you're talking about with mixing 
meeting practical needs with the gospel, but they, they're able to combine it with playing trumpet. So you never know, you might, it might come together. It may yeah. be. I, I haven't hardly picked one up in, in decades, but, but, uh, no, I, I find all, all of my fulfillment in, you know, just loving God and love, you know, it's like he has loved us so much. I just want to love him back. Amen. And that, that transforming experience that I had at Asbury University through your grandfather has never stopped bearing fruit in my life. Mm, amen. What a blessing. Well, I love how our stories come together. And Bevan, thanks for taking time uh, to share with us here. Yeah, it's a indeed. real blessing. And mine as well. Thank you. Oh,